God, who is faithful, by whom you were called. The call that changes everything. The call that changes everything. Now we've seen already in this series that we're going through that when we speak of salvation we're actually talking about many different things. We're talking about something which had an historical accomplishment. 2,000 years ago at Calvary on the cross the Lord Jesus Christ actually did something. He actually accomplished something. On the cross 2,000 years ago, my sins, my guilt, was all laid upon Christ and then and there he paid the price. And it was done. And he went into the grave. Three days later he rose again. And then 40 days after that ascended into heaven and was exalted where he still is, the man who is God. And in his resurrection life, for me is the hope and certainty of newness of life. And in that life which he has, which will never end, is my hope of everlasting life. So it was done. And one day in the future, we do not know when, and those who tell you they think they might know, just ignore them, because no one knows except the Father. One day Christ will return, and we will enter into a future certain hope of salvation, which will, will be the fulfillment of it all. But between what happened in the past at Calvary and that which we have as our certain hope, those of us who are Christian believers were brought into the reality of what Christ did. It's become real to us, those of us who are believers. And for those who are not yet, they too re require something to happen which makes what happened 2,000 years ago something that they can say now is mine. That saviour is mine. How do we enter into the reality of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago? That's the question under consideration this morning. How does that saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ become yours and mine? And we're going to spend quite a few weeks considering all the different things that the Bible teaches about the answer to that. But this is our starting point this morning. We read in Romans chapter 10, whoever 
calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then some questions are asked in the very next verse. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him if they haven't heard of him? And how shall they hear about him if no one is there to tell them, if there is no preacher? Now, if you look carefully at the order of that verse, Paul actually begins at the conclusion and works his way in reverse to the beginning. So actually, if you work backwards through the verse, what you have is this. The preacher preaches, the listener listens, the listener believes, then the listener, who now is a believer, calls on God. Preacher preaches, listener listens, listener believes, and now as a believer, the believer calls on God. These things are very important. You only call on God if, first of all, you've been brought to the place of belief. I'll prove that in a moment because there's a verse that teaches very clearly that the opposite is true. We'll come to that shortly. Belief comes first. Men and women don't call on God in order to believe. They call on God because something is happening inside them and now they believe. And how are they brought to belief? By hearing the gospel being preached. But... Many who hear the gospel being preached are never saved. Why is that? Is it because it's not the biblical gospel that's being preached? Well, in some cases, perhaps. But even when it is the true biblical gospel that's being preached, many are never saved. Is it the fault of the preacher? He's just not very good at it. It is true that some preachers are particularly gifted and able compared to others perhaps. But actually, for the most part, speak to any evangelist who many see in them is a great gift of preaching and evangelism. Only a very small percentage of their listeners ever come to faith in Christ. The famous American evangelist D.L. Moody once commented that far too many people who he had seen profess faith later had no visible change of life. Were they all truly saved? Is it the fault of the message? The straightforward proclaiming of Christ is just not enough, some will say. You need to be able to make all kinds of other clever arguments. You need to be able to answer every objection. You need to be able to follow a system of logical reasoning. No. It doesn't work that way you'll find nothing in the Bible to support that kind of thinking. 
how exactly does the Bible present things to us? How does that saving work of Christ become yours and mine? How do we come to the point of calling on the name of the Lord? Three things this morning. Number one, we preach to those who cannot hear or understand. That's the first thing you have to realise. The natural man, come to that phrase in a moment, the natural man or woman does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're not intellectually discerned. They're spiritually discerned. So what's wrong with the natural man? A phrase which simply means men and women in the sinful condition in which we're born. What's wrong with us that we cannot receive or know the things of God? It's the problem of our sinful heart and nature. Unbelief is hardwired into us. The Bible reveals us to be spiritually dead, blind and deaf on account of that utterly morally corrupt nature that we have and that we lack any faculty to comprehend the gospel in our sinful state. We just cannot do it. The scriptures teach that we're born dead in trespasses and sins, that our minds are blinded by Satan and, John's gospel tells us, our ears are deaf because we are not of God. In our sinful state, we do not have the capacity to be able to respond to the gospel of Christ. Now in Romans chapter 3, you'll read a most amazing description and definition of sinful men and women. From verse 10 of Romans 3, there is non-righteous, no, not one. Well, we're familiar with that. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. You'll hear it said, let Let's make our services more seeker-friendly. I've got news for you. There are no seekers out there. The Word of God says so. There are no seekers. They don't seek after God. They're not looking for Him. They've all turned aside, become unprofitable. None who does good, no, not one. Throat an open tomb, tongues with deceit, poison under their lips, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the natural man. That's us in our sin. Unable to hear. No desire to hear. No desire to seek after God. Now, a few minutes ago, we read from 1 Corinthians 2 that the things of God are foolishness to unbelievers. 
In the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, how many times do you suppose the Apostle Paul uses that word foolishness to describe how the gospel sounds to an unbeliever? How many times does he use the word foolishness? Five times. Foolishness, foolishness, foolishness. That's all they'll ever hear coming from your lips. Foolishness. I don't think Paul wants us to miss the point. The proclaiming of the truths of the gospel is the commission that God has left in our hands. That in our sins we are in desperate need of salvation. That the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope as the one who died in our place for the pardon and forgiveness of our sins as we've seen in these recent weeks. And as part of the gospel message that he went into the grave, was raised the third day and now is exalted on high. All of these things, part of the gospel message. And for us to proclaim, preaching from pulpits, yes, but also in conversation with your family members, with friends and colleagues, in Sunday school classes, in youth meetings, in evangelistic outreach, in the city centre, at youth camps, on the beaches in the summer, wherever and however we can do it, this message of Christ is to be transmitted. But all the time and at every point, we must understand that those to whom we speak lack any capacity at all to understand the gospel. And we are to expect that it will be as foolishness to them. Now on the face of it, this therefore is the craziest wild goose chase that anyone has ever embarked upon. Is it not? On the face of it. Proclaiming a message that makes no sense to anyone and exhorting people to make a response they cannot make. That is gospel preaching, according to the Bible. But this is God's revealed pattern for gospel work, by which sinners are saved and by which Christ adds to his church. Because it is as the gospel is being proclaimed, not as clever arguments are being made, as the gospel is being proclaimed, that there are those who hear a different voice. Have you heard it? Oh, you'll know if you have. Have you heard it? You see, there is a voice, secondly, which enables understanding, and there is a voice that empowers a response. So, I'm going to be careful not pointing at anyone. Here's a group of friends. They're sitting side by side. They could be in a church. They could be in a gospel meeting. They could be in a Sunday school class. They could be sitting around a campfire at a summer camp. All are li listening to someone sharing and explaining the gospel. They're all listening to the same preacher. They're all hearing exactly the same words. And all remain completely unmoved and unimpressed by the whole thing. 
It just seems ludicrous. There are so many things that they disagree with and cannot accept. Except for one. Or maybe two or three. But let's just say just this one. There is one sitting quietly with head bowed listening more and more intently as every word is spoken. Something miraculous and mysterious and glorious is taking place inside them, which has nothing to do with the preacher. It's like there is another voice speaking deep into their soul and it's piercing the heart and it's moving them and it's troubling them but it's also making everything that they're hearing starting to make perfect sense it can't be the preacher he's not having this effect on anyone else it can't be the message at least it can't be only the message because the message isn't having this effect on anyone else. What is happening in this one? And why is it not happening in the others? Because in this one, God's spirit is at work. And in the others, he isn't. God's Holy Spirit is moving. And he is doing something that is going to change this one forever. That which the others are all dismissing, this one is believing. The response to the gospel, which commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn away from your sin, to put your trust in Christ as your saviour, the others are turning their back on and disregarding. But in this one, it's like a light that's being switched on in the darkness. And that light is growing brighter and brighter. And in that light, they're seeing more and more clearly their need of salvation. And they're seeing more and more clearly that only the Lord Jesus Christ can meet that need. And the light is growing and growing and growing. He's the one I need for forgiveness and pardon of sins. And as Christ's atoning and redeeming work at Calvary is being explained, it's becoming more and more personal. Jesus did this for me. He's my saviour. What produces that? God's spirit is at work, moving, moving, moving. Now the Bible explains this in a number of different ways. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. This one is starting to see. So what has happened? They've been born again. They don't know the words yet, but that's what's happened. Born again through the word of God, says Peter in his first epistle. 
through the word of God as the Holy Spirit moves. Jesus said his sheep will hear his voice and they'll follow. There's a sheep in the crowd. They've heard and they're following. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. God has worked in power in this one through the gospel and they're believing. As the gospel is being preached, God's power is at work in this one. The spirit accompanies the spoken word, brings the sinner to belief, to faith, to repentance, to salvation. We read in Romans, in our sin, we don't even seek after God. This one is now. Because God's done something to change them. We saw in Romans 10, only when you believe will you call upon God. Something drastic has to change in the sinner. And that's exactly what God does. God is faithful. By whom you were called. God is calling. By the Holy Spirit, he brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Born again. He, by the Holy Spirit, opens and illuminates blind minds, unstops deaf ears. He takes away our cold hearts. He replaces them with hearts filled with trust and faith and love and hope. He takes away our love of sin and replaces it with love for Christ. He makes our sins abhorrent to us so that we turn away from them, pleading his forgiveness. And he gives us a nature which now seeks after righteousness and godliness and holiness and causes us to lay hold on Christ. Now in some, this happens quickly and dramatically. It's like a floodlight just being switched on in all of its fullness. In others, well, it's, it's more like a dimmer switch and it's just slowly being turned up and slowly being turned up. It's God who's operating either the floodlight or the dimmer switch. It's, it's God's hand that does both. And however it is, that's what happens. And the light comes on and it's all God's doing. And this one in the midst of the group is hearing God speaking. They're hearing God calling because God is doing this mighty work of renewal within them. And Christian theologians call it the effectual call of God. God visits the sinner by his Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed and a mighty work of grace begins, renewing, transforming, regeneration we sometimes call it, being made a new creation 
in Christ. And they come because now they can. They're alive. They can see. They understand. They come because they must. So convinced are they of their need of salvation and that only Christ can give it. And it's all of God. Just how many times the story of Jesus raising Lazarus has been used to illustrate this point, I don't know. Many, many times. But there's a reason for that. It's probably the best picture we've got as to what actually happens. A physical picture which explains the spiritual reality inside the heart of every sinner. Lazarus is in the grave. Cold, decaying, stinking of death. A very accurate physical picture of our spiritual state before God. And outside, Jesus calls him. Lazarus, come forth. And he does. A personal call directed to Lazarus by name. And if it were not for the one who said those words, surely the most ridiculous words that have ever been said on the face of the planet. Asking a dead body to get up out of the grave and walk out. Surely the epitome of foolishness. Lazarus in his deadness has no faculties, either physical, mental or emotional, to respond to those words of Christ. He's dead. He has no capacity by which to hear. He has no capacity by which to want to get out of the grave. He has no capacity by which he can actually get up and do it. No hearing, no thought, no will, no desire, no ability, nothing. But rise he does. How? Because in the call of Christ, accompanying the call of Christ, there is life-giving power. And as the call is made, Lazarus is transformed. He's brought to life. His body is renewed and restored. We're talking this morning about how it is that the sinner enters into and becomes a partaker of the salvation which Christ has secured. Here's the answer. God calls them. And in his call, there is life-giving power. And they are born again. And they are made new. Is that your testimony this morning? The Apostle Paul refers to Christian believers as being called by God more than 30 times in his New Testament letters. Sometimes he refers to them as the called. We read one of those occasions before in our Bible reading. 
called through God's grace, called by the gospel, called with a holy calling, called to be saints, called according to God's purpose, called into the fellowship of Christ, called out of darkness and into his marvellous light, called to suffer. Don't forget that one. Called to God's eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And the reason that so many don't respond to the gospel is because God doesn't call them. The Spirit doesn't do that work within them. But he does do it in, in, in many. Now later in the series we'll be looking at what we call this, this doctrine of election. Uh, this whole issue of why it is that God chooses only to call some and not all. That's for another day but we will get there. But for this morning, let's content ourselves by remembering some of the things that Jesus himself said. He said that although many are called, many are called by the outward voice of a preacher or a friend sharing the gospel with them. Few are chosen, said Jesus, few. There's a wide gate said Jesus many go through it and many then walk on that broad road which leads to destruction but there's a narrow gate comparatively few walk through that gate it's a difficult road but it leads to life which road are you on? I want to finish just by clarifying a few things. Things which will keep us from wrong thinking in gospel work. And, and all that I'm going to say has as its basis this final point. The sinner calls upon God because God first calls them to himself through the gospel. Now, when we first become Christians... We will often say something like this. Um, I chose to follow Christ. And you did. I called upon God for salvation. And you did. But it's very wrong to suppose that anyone has within them the ability to see it or understand it or to work out for themselves that they need it God does not say look what I've done through Christ over to you make up your own mind that's not how it works that's not how you got saved because left to your own mind you won't seek after God will you you won't If that's how the gospel worked, we'd all remain exactly as we are. None of us would change. None of us would choose Christ. None of us would repent of our sins. It wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't add up. 
And in our sin, our minds would already be made up. We prefer the side of the fence that we're already on, thank you very much, and we're going to stay there. Left to ourselves, none of us will turn to Christ. The sinner who does choose Christ and who does call upon God only does so because of this regenerating work that God has done within them. And he does that first and calls them to respond. And because he's done that work, now they can. John 6, 39. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Your believing in God is God's work in you. Uh, his, his two uh, theological words for you. We say that salvation of the sinner is prevenient and monogistic. Prevenient simply means God calls you first. He must. If he does not, you'll stay in your sin because no one seeks him. But God calls you first. Monogistic. Now, some of you who use online search programs, you'll be aware of the website called Monogism. Why? Why Monogism? Because the gospel is monogistic. It is only and it is entirely the work of God. You contribute nothing. As opposed to synergistic, synergy. Two things that have to work together in order for something to be accomplished. That's what some teach. God's done his bit. You have to do your bit. Bring the two together. You get saved. No. It's entirely the work of God. That you believe is God's work in you. He makes you new. Everything that causes you to turn to Christ is his doing in you by his grace. And we need to bear in mind that the sinner does not call upon God because of intellectual rigor. It's not because some people are able to work it out whilst others can't. You cannot take an unbeliever through a process of reasoned, logical argument or debate or through a process in which you attempt to eliminate every other alternative and bring them to the conclusion that, well, can't you see now there's nothing left but to believe on Christ? It doesn't work that way. You cannot do for them, and they cannot, even with your help, do that which only God can do. Only God can do it. It has nothing to do with intellectual faculties or intellectual processes. It has nothing to do with philosophical reasoning. Now, those things can help to answer arguments that people might bring, but they're not the things that save people. It's a spiritual issue. They have a spiritual problem, and only the Holy Spirit can deal with them and sort it out. Only he can do what's required to bring them to repentance and faith. And God does that work through the truth of the gospel by the effective power 
of his Holy Spirit. Now finally, it's not for us to alter or adjust the message either or the method to try and make it appear less foolish to people. People will find it foolishness. You should expect people to say this just this is just crazy. Don't be put off by that. It's exactly the response the Bible says you should expect while they're in their sin. That there are truths within the gospel that some might find actually seem to hinder them coming to faith rather than help them come to faith is something that you should expect to find. The Apostle Paul said for some it's foolishness. For others the gospel itself is a stumbling block to them. It hinders them rather than helps them. That's the response you should expect. Don't argue with the Bible over how gospel work is done. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The truths of the word of God, the truths of the gospel are what people need to hear about. Who we are in our sin. What is God's judgment of our sinful condition? Who Christ is and what he's done to save sinners. And how through this, God demonstrates depths of love and grace and mercy that we cannot even begin to imagine. We need to tell them what God demands of every single one of us. That all people everywhere repent and trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and for life everlasting. Have you done that? This is the gospel we preach. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. To those who believe as he calls each one to himself. We'll sing a hymn to close.